Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are Dr. Tom Carrico, the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the nation's leading experts on air and missile defense, as well as hypersonics and long-range precision fires, and Mark Gonzo Gunzinger, a retired United States Air Force colonel who is the director of the Future Concepts and Capability Assessments uh, practice at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He is also a legendary B-52 pilot who also ranks as among the nation's leading long-range strike thinkers. Guys, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Vago. Good to be with you. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and General Motors Defense is our technology sponsor. Uh, Gonzo, uh, let's uh, start, start with you. Obviously, two increasingly critical elements of U.S. power are long-range strike and better air and missile defenses, and we're going to be talking about that uh, with, with both of you. Uh, but I want to start with your uh, report uh, Gonzo, building a force that wins recommendations for the 2022 national defense uh, strategy. Each administration uh, advances national defense and national security strategies. Uh, our audience knows that the 2018 document that uh, got acclaim was actually uh, a lot of the foundational elements were in the Obama documents, uh, as well as the 2014 strategy that noted the importance of great power competition and the importance for the United States to change its game accordingly. Um, the new administration is working its uh, national defense strategy. There, there is some uh, discussion that the document was actually drafted in March uh, and is working its way through the staffing process. Obviously, there was an interim uh, guidance that had the 2018 NDS as its, as its core. What are the problems that the new uh, strategy has to solve, Mark? Yes, uh, 2018 strategy uh, shifted duties planning towards defeating peer aggression, deterring and defeating peer aggression, as well as sustaining nuclear deterrence, fending the homeland, deterring a second lesser aggressor. Uh, they also adopted a new theory of victory for a major conflict with China or Russia, and that is to defeat their attempt to invade a US ally or a friend. Uh, so it's a fait accompli denial theory of victory. But there are two things that we point out in our latest report available on Mitchell's website. Uh, first, the last national defense strategy directs the services to organize, train, and equip their forces for a short fait accompli denial operation. What happens if China decides to continue their offensive, to continue their military operations, even if their attempted invasion of Taiwan is defeated by US and allied forces, or their campaign in the South China Sea is defeated. Well, if we size and shape our force, the joint force for a short war, and China fights a war of exhaustion after the fate accomplished it fails, well, that gives them a path to victory. And the other thing is the last strategy shifted from a two-war construct, be prepared to win in two wars, and that would deter a second opportunistic aggressor from making a move if we're engaged in another theater. They shifted it to a one-war construct. 
So what if our forces are fully engaged in the Indo-Pacific against China? What kind of a signal would that send to, to Russia if we don't have the force structure, if we don't have a force that size and munitions capacity and so forth required to defeat a move that they might make in the Baltics or elsewhere along NATO's eastern frontier? So that could give them a path for victory. Both of these combined uh, drive significant risk into the equation that we think the next defense strategy should address. Tom, um, you know, you've uh, you've looked at the document as well, and this is an issue that you've uh, been been thinking about as well. Obviously, your former colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Kath Hicks, is the deputy defense secretary and is wrestling with some of these issues uh, now. What's 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 your sense uh, on uh, right? Because, I mean, what Gonzo is talking about is, for example, bomber uh, attrition, uh, which is something we haven't thought about. For many decades, what's what's your sense on 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 Gonzo's approach? Well, well, and I, concerns. I, I, I will say I, I haven't read the report yet. I, I saw it this morning, and I, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to, to digging into it. Uh, I will tell you though that uh, first of all, I'm glad he's he and his colleagues are, are looking at this problem. And, and the first thing that popped in my mind was the two war uh, construct that we've we've gotten away from. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind there, I'll say though, and, and this is not going to be popular, uh, is that you know getting away from the two war conventional uh, uh, construct means that we have to candidly uh, admit to ourselves that, that that's going to require putting more uh, reliance upon our, our nuclear deterrent. Uh, if you're going to be back in that position, as we were in decades past, uh, that's one of the reasons why you have that. We had extended deterrence commitments with nuclear weapons. Uh, we, we, that's why we did not have a no first use pledge during the Cold War. Right. Um, I hate to say that, but that's that's the first thing that, that comes to mind. But again, I'm I'm glad to hear that they're they're looking at this. But 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 Vago, to come back to, to your other question, which was what does the budget uh, this year do? You know, I see I see it still as a bit of a transition. We're still kind of getting to alignment with the national defense strategy. I don't think we're there yet. I remember doing a podcast with uh, with you, Vago. I think a couple of years ago, two years ago, and you you asked the. Uh, the Pat Shanahan question to me, you know, is this the masterpiece? Uh, and my, right. my, my answer at the time was no, it's closer to masterpiece theater. Uh, I think we're getting, we're getting there, uh, but we're not quite there yet. I think probably the 23 budget will be an opportunity for, for greater alignment. But I would say that on a macro scale, we're still seeing the, some birthing pangs uh, as, we, as we try to birth the new joint warfighting concept. And, and move and try to, I would say, break the necessary programmatic uh, and budgetary and doctrinal China to get into alignment with the NDS. I'll say, I think, I think Mark will agree with me on this. You know, services like the Marines have broken such China and are making some hard strategic choices to move out and adapt to the new situation we, we're in. I think the bipartisan criticism of the administration's uh, Pacific Deterrence Initiative budget proposal kind of reflects the fact that there's still some hard choices to be uh, to be made and implemented. Um, Gonzo, uh, let me let me go to you on that. And I remember when you said the masterpiece theater, uh, Tom, that was uh, artfully uh, artfully uh, put. Um, Gonzo, it, you know the the challenge now is there's there's still an enormous amount of money going for uh, defense. Uh, there was a great duffel blog. Uh, post of, you know, Congressman averts eye contact with service chiefs panhandling outside his office 
which I thought was was very funny, right? I mean, everybody has their unfunded list and Congress has a tendency of supporting it. So ultimately, nobody makes any hard choices. What are the kind of hard choices that are going to be needed if we know for a fact that the army can play a more prominent role, right? And and perhaps might have to be sized for uh, Europe, where the service is definitely uh, in the lead. Uh, you know, naval power in the Pacific, but air power is something that's going to be integral to both of those, right? What are some of the hard choices that have to be made from your standpoint if if you're not going to be able to expand everything? Right, absolutely. And I will tell you that uh, this year's budget was a disappointment. We have a force today that falls short of what would be needed for a single peer conflict. And building down to build up is a bankrupt approach to modernizing the force. The fact of the matter is we need more capability. We need next generation capability, but we need more capacity as well. Uh, To answer your question directly, hard choices have been made by all the services. You'll hear them say this over and over again on the Hill, but it's been done within their own stovepipes, within their own services. And in many cases, with a, a single capability portfolio, like the bomber force. Let's retire some B-1s. Gosh, we have a shortfall of armor strike. But let's retire some B-1s and take that money and support the rest of the bomber force. I'm sorry, that's bankrupt. The hard choices that need to be made are trade-offs across the services to maximize the combat capacity of the joint force as a whole, not service by service. And those are the choices that are not being made by this administration. And they weren't made by the last administration or administration before that either. And that's where the money is. That's where the real leap ahead in capability and capacity will come from. Tom? So I, I, I know where Mark's going. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and go there. Uh, this is about the, the long range uh, strike mission. And what I would say, and I know as, as Mark has written about this, uh, you know, the suggestion that, uh, for instance, the Army uh, should divest itself uh, of long-range strike and just and let the, uh, let the Air Force handle it, um, I, I, think is, I think is wrong. Um, I, I think there's an assumption there that the China problem is a hard problem. Um, and I tend to think that it's a very hard problem. And so as a result, I think that we're going to need fires, long-range fires, from all the domains, from all the services. Uh, These are not army fires we're talking about. These are joint fires that the army happens to supply and uh, will be at the uh, behest of the the joint combatant commander. But what I would say is that the China problem is a sufficiently big problem and a sufficiently hard problem that it's it's not gonna be sufficient to just let one service handle the long range strike mission. It's not adequate to let China only have to worry about, you know, air bases and tankers. When you hear General Hyten say that we need to put dilemma, you know, greater dilemmas on them, impose costs on them by having them have to worry about fires from all, uh, all domains, that's the approach that, that I think is right. And I would suggest that uh, the Marines have uh, an example here, uh, not the example uh, of divesting from tanks, but the example that the Marines are giving are doubling down on ground-based fires. Yes, they're connecting themselves to the Navy in new ways, but I think Commandant Berger is fantastic 
and how he's moving out in what he has called in his 2019 combatant uh, uh, commandant planning guidance, this new era of missile warfare. I think the Marines have it exactly right. And that's why they're, they're emphasizing things like ground-based anti-ship missiles and the like. I think you combine that with what the Army's doing on PRISM and medium-range capability, which does not get enough attention, although I give the administration and the Army credit for, for increasing the attention to the medium-range capability in this budget cycle. Uh, that's the kind of dilemmas that we need to, to impose upon uh, our adversaries across the force. Gonzo, go ahead. Yes, I will disagree with Tom, but not in a way he thinks. I have never said the Air Force should be the only service to do long-range strike. I think that's patently ridiculous. I do believe that DOD should approach this question from a cost-per-effect standpoint and take a look at how can we maximize our long-range strike capacity for the dollars that are going to be available. Now, when you look at Europe, uh, the PRISM, even the extended range PRISM, makes great sense in Europe to help uh, take out IADs and other A280 uh, threats because the ranges in Europe are appropriate for that weapon. And that weapon will have the right price point. Uh, of course, bombers, fighters, et cetera, will be bringing the uh, uh, strike capacity as well. But Army long range strike in Europe makes a lot of sense. Pacific different deal. Uh, and you take a look at the west coast of Japan, it's about 800 kilometers from the coastline of China. So prism-like capabilities, assuming that they are modified uh, with appropriate sensors to uh, attack uh, moving ships, great, no problem. Uh, Marine Corps, no problem with that whatsoever. That's certainly value added. But when you're talking about strikes deep in the mainland, the size and the cost of the weapons needed to do that from the service to the service uh, really ratchets up. And a better cost per effect basis solution is uh, air-launched weapons. The Navy would agree with that for that matter. Um, let me uh, take uh, go, go to you, Tom, uh, on this, right? I mean, and, and let me bring in uh, the uh, statement by uh, the former Global Strike Command uh, Chief General uh, Tim Ray, uh, who was on a Mitchell Institute conversation that I believe was being moderated by uh, none other than uh, retired United States uh, Air Force Lieutenant General uh, Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute. Uh, and, and one of the questions was, right, the extreme cost that, that some of these uh, weapons, you fire two of them, and you might be approaching the cost of an F-35, uh, ultimately. Uh, Tom, what's what's the right way to do this if we're going to do it without bankrupting ourselves? Because the sheer number of targets that will have to be addressed in any great power competition, uh, excuse me, great, great power conflict, will be in, in the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands Right, and these aren't one-offs. This this will be intensive at range. How how do you do this without imposing cost on yourself? Right, because the the whole Andy Marshall mantra is impose greater costs on your adversary than you're imposing on yourself. Right, I, well, or, first or all, any strategist mantra for that matter. Right. Well, I'd say first of all, if we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of of targets deep inside China, that's that's a different kind of problem, uh, but but here's the thing: if your if your solution is we're going to have tens of thousands of targets and we're going to fly over them and and deliver gravity bombs, uh, 
I think that's a pretty problematic solution based on their air defense situation right now. But let me go back to Mark's comment about the Navy. Um, the Navy, you know, again, again, I'm not for a particular service having a lead here. I think all three have a, a critical role here. But let's talk about the Navy. What is their principal effectors here? Well, you either got, either got your tomahawks, and let me again connect that to what I just said earlier about medium range capability. That's the tomahawk and the SM6 for the, uh, for the Army, land-based. And as I mentioned earlier, the Marines have been uh, had at least last year been pursuing uh, ground-based tomahawks, but I think it's all for the good. So I think we're, we're probably in agreement there. But if, if, if Mark, if you're alluding to the, to the Navy's uh, conventional prompt strike or CPS, well, you know, guess what? That is uh, joined at the hip with the Army's LRHW long-range hypersonic weapon. That is, in the words of Mark White, the, the uh, director of all things hypersonic and USD R&E, uh, that is, he said, the model uh, of uh, development there. Now, I don't think we should be building hundreds of thousands of those. I, I understand some former undersecretaries have said that. I don't think we should. Um, but as I look at the overall mix, you know, I think you're going to need a lot of subsonic things, but you're going to need things with range. And I certainly hope that those prisms come in a little bit more than 800. But I don't think the prisms in Japan need to be hitting things on the other side of China either. So I think there's really good uh, utility. And I give Army CFT uh, head uh, John Rafferty a lot of credit for extending out the range of prism to open up additional targets. Uh, but I don't think you got to hit the other side of China with a prism either. So, so if, you, if you're going to endorse the Navy's CPS, uh, the Army's LRHW that is joined at the hip, also mobile on land, that's part of the equation. And, and the development process there, if the Army were to go away on LRHW, the Navy would end up paying more for, for its CPS. Um, Gonzo, um, I, I think you would probably say, right, there are, so how, how, do you, how do you respond to Tom, right? The, uh, because um, the gravity bomb thing becomes a little problematic, right? I mean, is anybody in the Air Force looking at penetrating deep with, with gravity bombs in, in Chinese uh, A2AD or, or mainland China in, in as far as you can discuss that? As far as I can discuss that, I will tell you with 100% confidence, no one is talking about right. launching bomber sorties that penetrate into China to drop direct attack, very, very short range weapons on targets. Uh, the sweet spot for munitions to balance their cost with their range, with the number that can be carried internal to a stealth uh, uh, aircraft, be it a bomber or fighter, is somewhere between 65 nautical miles standoff out to about the range of the JASM. Uh, stealth aircraft are going to need some standoff so they don't get into the densest, highest risk uh, threat areas, but they don't need 500 or 1,000 mile standoff. Somewhere mm -hmm. between 60, 65 is plenty for an advanced stealth aircraft like the future B-21 or for that matter, F-35 and B-2. Uh, some aircraft will need a little bit more range. And that's why I picked the higher end of about 400 to 500 plus uh, nautical miles. But that also gives penetrating aircraft more coverage, which is uh, a benefit. On LRHW, they're going to cost uh, somewhere between 40 to 50 million each, maybe around 20 million for the booster and 20 for the boost glide uh, uh, vehicle. The fact of the matter is they're probably going to be a great weapon. But for the price of two of those, you could buy an F-35 
that's reusable and can fly sorties probably the next 30, 40 years. Or you can buy 66 air launch standing attack weapons that's being developed by the Air Force, again, for the purpose of uh, uh, penetrating enemy defenses and launch from uh, stealth aircraft and so forth. So when I'm talking about cost per effect, you want to buy two LRHWs or 66 targets. I mean, you have to think of it in that way. I'm not opposed to buying some number of LRHW, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen. I'm not sure what the number is. Certainly not in the hundreds. And the Navy isn't going to buy them in the hundreds either, simply because they can't afford them. They're too expensive. Um, let me bring the conversation can, can, can around. I, can I respond to that, Bart? Yeah, I, you, I you may, Tom. Not Go actually, ahead. I think we're and not I have actually... one follow-up to, to both of you on that, because I do want to get to uh, the the air and missile defense uh, challenge uh, at, at, as well, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I think we're not. We may not be as far apart after all, then, because if if the objection is don't buy hundreds and hundreds of them, buy dozens of them. Okay, because at that point, I would say you get your qualitative value, because the other value that the LRHWs or something like it or, or, or ground-based tomahawks gets you is they help open up. And, and they contribute to the seed so that his bombers with the stand-in attack weapons can, can do that with greater confidence. So I, I, I like that concept, but what, I'm, what I don't like is getting rid of it entirely, divesting the army, not really of, 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 the, of the, the long range prisms, but the, but the really long range stuff. I think there's just way too much value added. And I think they contribute to, uh, and they enable the air power benefits that he's talking about. So it's at that point, it's kind of where's the knee in the curve. Uh, from where I from where I come from, I think you get so much value by having fires from multiple domains. And you can talk about adjusting the numbers up and down, and whether it's ground-based tomahawks versus ground-based LRHW. Uh, that I, we, we're not in disagreement on, on the point that you, there's going to be knees in the curve. Where, where I would just get there is it's important to have that diversity of fires. Um, let me ask, you know, and, and uh, you took us there, Tom, uh, right, that this administration is looking for a comprehensive reca nuclear recapitalization in part because we are entering a new nuclear era. Chinese don't have a lot of nuclear munitions uh, at the point, certainly not like uh, Russia does, uh, nor does China appear to have the same kind of Russian doctrine, right, escalate to de-escalate use a whole variety of tactical weapons uh, to sort of confound and complicate decision-making. Ultimately, how reasonable is it to plan for any war that includes dropping munitions on China without this confrontation going nuclear? I mean, it is one element of it. We, we have to plan, you have to prepare, but, but ultimately, isn't this a nuclear, doesn't the nuclear deterrent suffice here to 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 a degree and tom i want you to start us off and then and then go to gonzo right because only one of us is you know the, the only person in this in this conversation who actually has like a lot of nuclear uh experience would be uh would be gonzo given that you know he was he was a bomb dropper and a strategist that also shaped icbms but go, go ahead tom so uh, first of all um this is one of the reasons I think LRSO is so important uh, so that the Air Force have that. So they not have to be making those uh, tough decisions of, of penetrating with manned bombers for, for this mission. Uh, but to pause there uh, on the question you just asked, um, I don't think we know. And I think 
the category, the unexplored category, the unexplored country here is this little piece of the last nuclear posture review called non-nuclear strategic attack. If Okinawa and Guam vaporize from conventional uh, munitions alone, that's a big deal and that's a strategic attack irrespective of no radiation being involved. And so that's really what I kind of worry about is, is, is where this goes without the nuclear, the nuclear thing. So yes, you can fall back on that. Uh, but in terms of, you know, are they necessarily going to respond if we attack their islands or something like that? I don't think we know. And that's why I think it's important to have as much, as, as much flexibility, as many options uh, as possible. Yeah, uh, I want to re-attack quickly and I'll get to your question. Uh, we focus on munitions. And my real point is you have to do the cost per effect analysis across the services to figure out the best mix of weapons as well as the capacity. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that the Army also intends to buy an airborne reconnaissance and targeting multi-mission system, Artemis which could be a modified 737 or a global and it wants to invest in a constellation of small sats that could be launched into low earth orbit and it wants to buy etc cetera, etc cetera. in other words it wants to buy the entire long-range strike kill chain and our DUD can't afford that so you really have to make the tough choices who's going to integrate long-range fires across the department. Who is going to provide the long-range ISR? They're required to do that and, and so forth. On your point, I'd like to talk about uh, the point regarding um, using dual-capable bombers and dual-capable cruise missiles, for that matter, to strike into mainland China. Uh, there's a school of thought bubbling out there that, oh, we shouldn't use dual-capable bombers to penetrate China because Chinese would not know if they're carrying nuclear weapons. Or not. That's patently ridiculous. Uh, Dr. Jim Miller, who uh, was on the panel where we talked about a, our latest report last week, made the great point. See, if we don't use bombers to strike thousands of targets in mainland China to help defeat a Chinese fate accomplished and achieve other missions. The alternative is we will lose. That's it, that's the case. So I just want to put that out because I think that's exactly right. We cannot do everything we need to against China from standoff ranges with standoff weapons. Uh, well, let's, let's go into Aaron Missile Defense, uh, Tom. Uh, bring you into it. Get your sense, and I want to get to the rules and mission side of, of this more broadly, right? I, I think Gonzo makes a great point. The US, United States Army, for all its brilliance, capability, and strategic acumen, has a tendency of wanting to reinvent the Air Force at roughly 15-year increments. Uh, and, and so there is that concern, whether it's with aerial common sensor or anything else, that begins to approach things uh, that that the Air Force does. On the other hand, there's this sense that on long range fires, there's a role for the United States uh, uh, Army in that, uh, in the deep battle in a way that maybe it, it hasn't uh, served in a very long period of time. And then on air defense, we get into the same sort of problems, right? I mean, the Pacific Defense Initiative in Aegis Ashore is, is sort of a programmer's nightmare, right? It would require Army money to buy a Navy system to defend the Air Force in, in, the, in the Pacific, right? I mean, 
That's like maybe, as one maybe, one maybe, guy put it, maybe. Dante's Dante's in, you know Dante's inferno of, of of programming hell. So what are the you know quickly from the both of you? What are the Key West style issues that have to be resolved here, and do we need Key West two at this point to definitively address some of these uh, challenges and problems that are uh, surfacing because of the threat, because of the thinking about the threat? and the technological capabilities that the services are trying to bear. Tom, start oh, us off and then Gonzo. So, so actually, I think uh, this has been uh, very well taken up uh, and answered by uh, the number two guy in charge of joint things, and that's uh, the vice chairman, uh, John Hyten. Uh, to the question of, of the roles and missions for the, for the long-range fires, he said, look, uh, I used to think that that was the right way to do this, but as I mentioned at the early, early part of this podcast, you know, it's, we're trying to birth something new. And, and, and he has, I think, spoken very persuasively and compellingly about this new joint warfighting concept. And he has spoken persuasively about the uh, importance of each service, uh, both defending themselves and striking deep. Uh, I just happen to fi find that compelling. I find it compelling when the Indo-PACOM commander, you know, pounds the table and says, I want ground-based fires in addition. So, so I think in terms of the roles and missions thing, what John Hyten has said there is, let's get the services, let's get some capability out to all the services, let's experiment with it while for, for a while, let's figure out this new joint warfighting concept. And then in several years, maybe five years from now, we can figure out, hey, do we buy fewer of this or more of this? Is there a new role and missions thing? But, but as he put it very eloquently, you know, 1948 era thinking is not sufficient for today. We need 2021 thinking. So I think we need to experiment with this new concept as it emerges. Let the several services contribute from the several domains in terms of the fires. And we can adjust the numbers along the lines that I think uh, Mark was, 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 was talking about uh, just a bit ago. So, so that's what I would say there. And I think you're also alluding to the roles and missions for the air defense. And here, I think... Uh, I think we'll probably uh, agree, and that is that uh, you know the Army's uh, approach on air defense has been insufficient. Uh, they started doing core SAM in 1993 to deal with the then emerging uh, cruise missile problem. Well, as the Iranians showed us in 2019, uh, that is no longer an emerging problem. And what the Iranians can do, our Chinese and Russian friends can do orders of magnitude more. Uh, and yet, the IFPIC program, which is the Army's new current ground-based uh, cruise missile defense program, is way, way behind. It's very challenging. And that's one of the reasons why folks are looking at other things, including Navy things. The Army had to go to the Navy for the CRAM, for their close-in defense for their, for their ships. Uh, and it's, I think it's one of the reasons why they're looking at, they're doing some shoot-offs, but they're looking at uh, things like Aegis Ashore, but in new configurations and more survivable configurations uh, for things like Guam. Uh, that's the situation where we are. Uh, I can relitigate the last 20 years of MEADs and all these other things, uh, but it doesn't help much. I think the Army obviously needs to continue prioritizing IFPIC. Uh, we need a lot more air-based defense for those things that we can't move or hide, uh, but it's also going to have to come down to a uh, production of active air defense from multiple services. That's just the reality of where we are. 
and, and, and this is coming as the Navy ends its railgun program, right? Which was uh, something that was seen as having uh, a lot of air and missile defense promise, uh, obviously. Um, Gonzo, g- yeah. give, us, give us your sense on this. Yeah, uh, Tom, thank you for mentioning General Hyten. I think he is wrong in many regards and he has not done a great job. The time for it, let a thousand flowers bloom is coming, gone. We don't have the time to let a thousand uh, flowers bloom. We don't have the dollars, the budget to let a thousand flowers bloom. Choices need to be made, cross domain and, and cross service. But I do understand why he's saying what he's saying, because his boss is an army general and his boss's boss is a retired army general. Uh, on air and missile defense, the army should put more resources into doing what is its appropriate role in mission, what its responsibility has in defending ports, uh, logistics sites, airfields and other bases along the first island chain and Europe. They're gonna be critical to fighting it and defeating great power aggression. Uh, roles and missions, if you would help, but the fact of the matter is we need roles and missions decisions. And so far, we do not have a civilian leadership in the building willing to make those tough choices to the detriment of our nation and to the detriment of defense. What is going to advantage our joint force more? Army investing in air and missile offenses, which would help the entire force to generate that combat power forward or investing in overly expensive long-range strike weapons for the Pacific. I'm not talking about Europe. I'm talking about the Pacific. I know I'm Tom. I'm going to give you 15 seconds and then uh, uh, Gonzo, you get 15 seconds to counter whatever Tom wants to say. Three, two, one, go. I'll just say, I, I agree that time is short. And, and that's precisely why I think we have to uh, have things like army fires for, for some quantity uh, within the very near term so that we can complicate on a qualitative basis in the near term. And I agree that uh, having multi-main long-range strike systems are great, especially in Europe, in the Pacific, you have to filter it through. What could that money be used for? Would it be more advantageous to invest in air missile defenses instead of redundant kill chain capabilities? That's a question that the Congress should ask and our DOD leadership should ask. Guys, uh, thanks very much. Really, really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure having you both on. This is a debate and discussion I want us to continue to have. Gonzo, thanks very, very much. Tom, thank you very much. And I hope you guys keep well. Thanks, Vago and Mark. Really enjoyed that. Uh, Thank you, Vago and Tom. It was great. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.